Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Today's episode is brought to you by The Trade Desk. With your audience on every device under the sun, it's a good thing your media buy can stay under one roof at The Trade Desk. Learn more at thetradedesk.com. That's thetradedesk.com. You're listening to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. It's the Adweek Podcast, where we talk about marketing, media, technology, advertising, pop culture, because in the end, everything's an ad. I'm David Greiner. I'm an editor with Adweek.com. With me as he is each week is Tim Nutt, our co-host and creative editor at Adweek. Tim, welcome back. Thanks. Good to be back. You've been taking a few weeks off late. You've just been enjoying the, the last of the summer up in scenic Maine. Yeah, trying to get my uh, my six weeks of summer in in Maine, which uh, we had a we had a pretty, quite a nice August. A little chilly, but um, but yeah. It's good to be back, though. I'm waiting on, the, on all the new great campaigns in September that we did not get in July and, and August. Yeah, it has been slow. And you missed our, our 50th episode celebration last week where we took uh, questions from our audience. Thanks again to everybody who wrote in. And uh, it was a lot of fun. So, uh, Tim, when you get a chance, you should uh, go back and listen to it. We got some interesting questions and commentary. I definitely will. All right. Well, diving in this week, we've got in our third and fourth chair, Lauren Johnson, uh, senior editor covering the Tech Beat. Welcome back, Lauren. Always a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thanks for having me. And in our fourth chair, Marty Swant, a staff writer also covering tech. Uh, Marty, great to have you back. Good to be back. Well, and we have loaded for bear uh, with tech coverage because we've got to Mexico coming up, one of the larger conferences on the international tech scene coming up in Cologne, Germany. And uh, we are going to be talking about what to expect from this conference. I'm sure many of you listening probably will not get to uh, go enjoy being in Cologne with the rest of the Illuminati of the uh, of the tech world, and nor will I. So uh, we will talk to Lauren about what to expect and find out what kind of trends are going to be hot topics there this year. Uh, we're also going to be covering some big news uh, on the top marketers of the year, and Tim's going to tell us about the ads worth watching. But first, let's get to the news. All right, well, big news out of Adweek ourselves uh, today. We just announced our Brand Genius class for 2017. So these are our marketers of the year. This is basically the biggest award we give out each year. Uh, got quite a mix. Uh, I'm just going to name a few of them here, and you can definitely, if you just Google Brand Genius 2017 Ad Week, some variation thereof, or just go to our homepage right now, uh, you will find the full list. Uh, but we've got uh, John Iwata from IBM, who is their uh, SVP and Chief Brand Officer in the automotive sector. We've got Alan Bethke from Subaru of America, their VP of Marketing. 
Luke Sherwin uh, from Casper, who Tim, I believe, was also on our Creative 100, right? Yes, he was. He is the CCO and co-founder of Casper, the mail-order mattress company, a very fascinating guy. Uh, got Allegro Hair from Adidas, or Adidas, if you're listening to this from overseas. Uh, Bill Beck from Whirlpool. Whirlpool is a fascinating one uh, because they actually won one of the top awards at Cannes. I remember uh, we sat down at the the big press announcement, and Tim, like, you looked at the winner list and said, wow, Whirlpool with a Grand Prix. <laughs> just <laughs> not something you see every year. Definitely. That's a cool campaign, though. We should talk a little bit about that, maybe. Yeah, and and then uh, just uh, real quick, rattle off a few more here. We've got CMO uh, Linda Boff from General Electric, who I'm definitely going to ask Lauren about in a minute because I know they have talked quite a bit. Uh, from In the hospitality sector, Marriott, Marriott International. We've got Karen Timponi, the global marketing officer, and Frito-Lay in the consumer packaged goods. Jennifer Saints, I believe, SVP and CMO of Frito-Lay. Uh, and then from Instagram, Taj Alavi, the head of brand marketing over there. Uh, and uh, who did I forget? Maybe Victor Luis, the CEO of, uh, of Coach in our luxury category. I think that covers all of them. Uh, Tim, yeah, tell us a little bit. Remind us about that Whirlpool campaign. Yeah, the Whirlpool campaign from the past year that's been such an interesting one uh, is called Care Counts. And, you know, it's one of these campaigns where a marketer does does more than just put out some nice advertising where they kind of get embedded in the community and do something good for the world and, and for their consumers. And, and, and what Whirlpool did was um, they piloted a school program where they brought in washers and dryers into – uh, you know, some, some more economically challenged neighborhoods into, into the schools there. And, you know, based on this insight that, you know, a lot of kids, um, unfortunately in America today just don't have access to clean clothes that they, they don't, uh, they're unable to, you know, their parents are unable to make it happen at home, uh, regularly enough. And this actually leads to quite a bit of truancy in schools. And so what Whirlpool thought they would do is, is try this program where they could actually, um, wash the kids' clothes at school, and it's been a, a the, the pilot was a big success. And um, Digitas LBI uh, came up with this idea uh, along with Whirlpool, and you know it's been one of these kind of amazing success stories. I believe it won um, it won a Grand Prix at Cannes this year. I think in creative data, I think it was a, a very data heavy uh, insight that they had, and. Yeah, just a wonderful example of of a, of a brand kind of doing more uh, than just um, making nice ads and just doing something for, you know, that really makes a difference in people's lives. And uh, you know, kudos to Bill Beck and his team for for greenlighting this idea and really taking it. Um, I think they're expanding it, in fact, uh, over the next year. So it's not, you know, it's not really a stunt at all. It's it's much more of a of a real campaign that's actually happening. Now, General Electric, as I mentioned, is also, to me, one of the most fascinating marketing companies, especially in the content marketing space. Uh, Lauren, without too many spoilers of some of the stuff we've got coming up from your uh, conversation with Linda Boff, tell us about her. What, what, you know, what strikes you? She seems like a very charismatic CMO, not necessarily what you would think of as the General Electric marketing chief. That's very true. I think when you, a lot of people, um, she's kind of been at the forefront, her and to be fair, Beth Comstock, who's um, was the former CMO, has now moved uh, elsewhere at, at GE, um, have really kind of taken this brand that you do not think of GE as being a cool or hip or fun and, and kind of made it that through through content marketing and digital platforms and stuff. And I, that comes across very much in her, too. She's just she's a fun person and, you know, really has a grip on how people use digital platforms. She herself uses digital platforms in, in very interesting ways, which kind of speaks to why GE is, is usually pretty quick to 
jump in and test new platforms. And she, she is a very just, you know, kind of um, outspoken, fun person to, to be around and to bounce ideas off of. Now, Marty, we also, of course, uh, included Instagram in here. They're head of brand marketing, Taj Alavi. Uh, what do you think Instagram has done so well in the last year that, that got them this top honor from our brand marketers of the year? Yes, it's a good question. Uh, I think that the big story for Instagram over this past year has definitely been Instagram Stories, which, as most people know by now, is their Snapchat clone. Um, the growth has been really impressive on that. I think they're at like, I forget the total, it's like 250 million daily users. And I think it's even higher than that. But um, it's just grown really rapidly after or, over the first year. And while they haven't necessarily done any, you know, uh, typical like creative campaigns that can think of offhand, uh, unless I'm forgetting something. Uh, it's been interesting to see how visually they've been able to make that platform into its own, um, both feeling a little bit looser than the feed, but also at the same time feeling um, still pretty creative with a lot of brands coming on board. Uh, yeah, so it's, it's definitely uh, been an interesting growth story, um, how they've taken the, the scale from Facebook, but kept the creativity of Instagram. Yeah, and on the advertising side too, the way that they've seamlessly interwoven Instagram with your Facebook ad buys. You know, I run a few ad buys every now and then for Adweek, and it is just so painless now to include Instagram in those buys. Uh, and you know, the and the it, stories are a little separate. Uh, that's run through a different kind of ad manager. Uh, and I think there's a lot of room for growth with the stories ads. I, I don't think they're all that good uh, compared to kind of the first Snapchat ones out of the gate. I get a lot of the same viral ad. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. It's like that. none of them are all that compelling, whereas I think Snapchat really had some fantastic creative uh, in, their, in their early story ad units. Um, but, uh, but man, you know, I pulled up, I, I got a new phone recently and I went something like, three weeks before I installed Snapchat and uh, I pulled it up and like I had two unread stories. I pulled up Instagram. I've got like 95 unread stories. You know, it's just to me. Now, admittedly, I'm, I'm a little old for the Snapchat set, but you know, there was a time where I, I had a pretty active feed in there uh, of stories waiting to look at. And if anything, I couldn't stay on top of it. Now this is a ghost town. There's like a tumbleweed blowing across and then looping every few seconds. Um, yeah. So anyway, yeah. congratulations to all of our brand geniuses. You're going to hear a lot more about these. We're going to have a big award show, and we're going to be featuring all of them. But definitely check out adweek.com for more on that. The other news story I wanted to talk about, uh, we, we just ran a piece on the comeback of LinkedIn, which I think is just such a great comeback story. It's like the revenge of the nerds almost, you know. Uh, LinkedIn, I think, has always been that. I used to always call it your dad's social network, uh, which is uh, somewhat accurate. I think my dad has actually like uh, endorsed me on LinkedIn, so thanks, Dad. <laughs> um, but uh, they are blowing up. You know, we don't have any great data on their user counts, uh, but the engagement that that people are seeing on there this has become a recurring conversation. And what's funny is that even among the VC community, who these are the people who really thrive on the what is hottest, coolest, newest. And they're all saying, yeah, I spend a lot of time on LinkedIn right now. <laughs> a few of the stats from our article about the, you know, the, new, the new hotness of LinkedIn, uh, we, we, our writer talked to Forbes, uh, which says that their click-throughs from LinkedIn are up 137%. I want to say ours are up about 100% uh, over the, over the, you know, since the beginning of the year, uh, which is pretty impressive. And uh, so, so yeah, the Forbes is up 137%. Bloomberg says that they've doubled their follower count this year alone and that their impressions on their content are up by 10 times. 
Uh, we haven't seen that sort of growth, but we are definitely seeing quite a bit. And the same thing with our audience exploded past like 750,000. Uh, and and so, you know, a lot of people looking to follow pages on there in the way that you used to follow on Facebook. And you just don't get served up that content on Facebook as much anymore. Uh, a few other quick things that point out that uh, LinkedIn's finally rolling out native videos. So you can just upload video directly to LinkedIn. Uh, there's fewer emails. They're not spamming people as much as they used to. Uh, they're not sending you as many in- annoying kind of endorsement requests. Just just those user experience frustrations of being on LinkedIn uh, have largely kind of eased up, if not gone away entirely. So I'm curious uh, for, for each of you, um, you know, has your experience with LinkedIn changed? I know none of us are, you know, thought leadership consultancy types, but you know, Marty, Lauren, have you guys, do you find yourself using it more or at least finding it, enjoying it a little more in the last year? You know, honestly, I don't necessarily use it more than I did, but it's one of those things that I wish I did, honestly. Um, but it's, it's interesting because everyone has this habit now built in of scrolling through Instagram or Facebook or all these other channels. But uh, with LinkedIn, it's it's arguably a lot more useful content, but it's just getting into that habit of scrolling through to see these stories because... Um, I still don't think people realize how vast the LinkedIn Pulse network is in terms of the types of contributors they have. And the editors, I mean, they have editors around the world that are that are pulling in a lot of big names, but also a lot of small but influential names that are editing these pieces that are going up every day. Um, and, you know, and so they've really built this massive content platform that I think it, it almost to me feels like it, it could rival like a uh, like a Forbes or a Fortune. They have these massive contributor networks. And I think that's sometimes overlooked. Um, but in terms of overall use, yeah, I mean, I think the, the kind of the silly endorsements and stuff like that are definitely, um, I don't get as many of those. Maybe, I don't know, maybe people aren't thinking of doing those these days, but. Maybe you're just not doing as much cool stuff as you Maybe I'm not. Know. I'm just becoming lame. I mean. <laughs> That's what 30 am, will do to you, I Marty. I 30, exactly. <laughs> The magic number this weekend. I should go the other way. You're turning you're turning thirty. It's time for you to start using LinkedIn every single day and and buy buy some nice sensible socks. And <laughs> no more Snapchat. I'm not cool enough for that stuff. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Lauren, have you had any any experiences, or do you generally avoid LinkedIn? I've just recently started trying to use it more. Like I used it this morning to push out a link to um, my cover story, and it, I sometimes do that, but not regularly. Um, mostly I did it because a few people in the office have been talking about how much reach they've been seeing with some of their posts that do that. And there's this whole, um, uh, a few people in the office have commented about how there's this whole long tail effect of stuff that you don't necessarily see directly on LinkedIn. Because think about, you know, when you share that post, there's a good chance it might end up on um, Twitter or elsewhere, maybe even maybe on Facebook. Um, but there's this whole kind of other layer and like uh, traffic stuff that you're not even seeing from LinkedIn that I think is kind of interesting. Well, I, I, you know, kind of like you guys, it's one one of those things where I need to be using it more. I think the people who use it most are probably the ones either looking for work or looking for clients. And we kind of fall, hopefully uh, fall into a different category. Uh, But I do find myself wanting to get into it more because it's to Marty's point, I don't scroll through it. I don't really check it day to day. But when I do, I'm like, oh, this is good stuff. Uh, But you really have to kind of sit down and dig into it. Their algorithm is very smart. Uh, Right now, it seems to serve me up a lot of pretty good content versus like, oh, so-and-so's been at their job three years. You know, it's it's gotten to be a lot less of that 
two dimensional little updates and, and more of like, oh, here's a fascinating post I never would have discovered except that a friend of mine engaged with it. Uh, you know, it's it's kind of everything you hate about Instagram with their algorithm is actually working really well for uh, LinkedIn right now. So we will keep an eye on that, but uh, for sure, you know, make sure you're following Adweek on uh, LinkedIn. And uh, we are posting quite a bit, and we're going to keep posting more because we're definitely getting a lot more engagement there. But now it is time to move on to my favorite part of the show, and great to have Tim back to walk us through the ads worth watching. Tim, what do you got for us this week? Well, so these are a couple of campaigns actually that came out last week uh, and that kind of caught my eye when I came back and, and looked over uh, everything we'd written about. The first one is a campaign for uh, Wonderful Pistachios, which is that brand that you know for many years did the Get Kraken campaign, which was very celebrity heavy, and uh, they they even had some Super Bowl buys in there with Stephen Colbert, uh, I believe, in, in starring in at least one of them. So they have a new campaign out that's kind of gets into a bit more dark comedy. You know, they used to be really broad comedy. Now there's new ads from uh, their in-house agency, uh, which is called the Wonderful Agency. Uh, all part of the Wonderful Company, which is, you know, uh, Palm Wonderful is part of that, and they have a bunch of different brands. Um, but anyway, the new ads, uh, basically um, Richard Sherman and Clay Matthews, the NFL players, um, narrate the ads. And the idea here, which is um, kind of bleak, is that uh, it focuses on people who have had really rough lives but but who are still happy. Um, in fact, they have these permagrins on their face because they eat wonderful pistachios. So it's... Uh, you know, it's a pretty broad concept. The humor is pretty broad. Um, it's probably uh, easiest to maybe listen to one of these. The 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 copywriting is uh, a takeoff, as you'll hear immediately. Uh, it's a takeoff on the most interesting man in the world stuff that Dosecki's uh, has been running for years. So let's listen to one of the spots here. Yeah, let's actually let's listen to one from each of the two kind of NFL endorsers because it's a lot of great copy, and I don't think we'll we'll regret listening to two of the spots here. Dale has had a rough life. As a child, his orphanage left him on the doorstep of another, less accredited orphanage. His doctor once recommended that he take up smoking. People say mean things behind his front. But Dale feels like a champion because he's eating tasty, protein-powered, wonderful pistachios. When you feel better about your snacks, you feel better about yourself. His dog got a restraining order. Jim has had a rough life. His third wife ran off with his second wife. His daughter's first words were, this isn't working, Jim. Tornadoes chase him. During a near-death experience, someone else's life flashed before his eyes. But Jim feels like a champion because he's eating tasty, protein-powered, wonderful pistachios. And when you feel better about your snacks, you feel better about yourself. So quite clearly and shamelessly uh, a ripoff of the Dosecki stuff. You know, having said that, I think some of the lines are pretty good. Um, it's it's tough to to match the Dosecki's copywriting from that. You know, the prime years of that campaign that was so good. The the Havas uh, worldwide work. Um, you know, Sherman and Matthews. I wouldn't say they're they're fantastic with the line delivery either. I don't know if it, if you know these this, this client is maybe a bit too wedded to the to the um, celebrities. Uh, they might have maybe done a little better with a professional voiceover actor here. But um, yeah, having said that, I, they they certainly went all in on this campaign. David, you like these spots, right? Yeah, and what's interesting on that point. Uh, so Eric Oster, our uh, agency reporter, actually interviewed the the creative chief at uh, Wonderful. 
uh, about this campaign. And he said that the, uh, you know, that Clay Matthews and Rich Sherman, that, that they were starting to rehearse and that they wanted to go through all these lines and practice them. And the creative team was like, no, no, don't, don't. We, and they said that they literally, the direction they gave them was, we want it to sound like these are, are spots you're required to record as part of a, a of a sponsorship deal you're tired of. <laughs> like, so they asked them to like, basically don't rehearse it, don't even look at the lines, and then deliver them in this really almost disinterested way, which you know, is not going to come across necessarily like to, to Tim's point. Uh, but I, I think it gives it a certain extra weirdness. Uh, they also left a lot of room for copywriting on set. I think mm-hmm. once they kind of got a sense, you know, it's one thing I can say this as a former copywriter too, is like, it's one thing you look at your lines on paper and you think, oh, these are great. And your creative mm-hmm. director like picks the ones that are work best. Then you actually hear them coming out of a mouth, <laughs> or like see them coming <laughs> from your spokesperson. You're like, no, half of those suck. <laughs> so they yeah, yeah. they came up with several on the fly, and they ended up writing. I, I want to say if you know, they said about half of their favorite lines. Um, you know, they they wrote all told they wrote something like a thousand lines, uh, and they ended up only running with like thirty. Uh, and mm-hmm. so they, um, and then they, and then they were ad libbing or not ad libbing so much as just having the copywriters come up with more stuff on on set. Uh, but I, I love the style of comedy. I love just the extremely bleak. And they said that they had to add music because originally there was no music. <laughs> so it was just depressing to mm-hmm. listen to. I can imagine. One of his moles tried to have him removed. I enjoyed that line. That was a good one. <laughs> Uh, um, did you guys, uh, Lauren or, or Marty, did you get a chance to listen to any of these? Yeah, I listened to um, some of them. I guess my question is I don't know if I think much differently about uh, pistachios as, as a result. I don't know if I'm going to like go out and go get some because they're going to make me feel so wonderful. Uh, but it's an interesting, extremely dark concept. <laughs> The uh, the one thing one beef I had with this campaign is the the name of it is something like put a smile on your snack face. Which is that feels very like uh, Old Spice to me. Yeah, definitely. Uh, it's just one of the, and I don't like it with Old Spice. To be clear, like whenever they do a, you know, like put this on your man smellinator, you know, or whatever, <laughs> they think yeah. it's all stupid with their wordplay, no. and they're making up words like this is your bro Roma or whatever, and I'm always just like, no, stop. Yeah, yes. the new one is uh, unforsweatable. Oh god! Which is uh, <laughs> I didn't even know that. the Von Miller stuff, the, the NFL stuff, which just the new spots <laughs> just came out today. Actually, it's like what does a what does a snack face even look like? Is that supposed to be like the new resting snack face? It's like a pie hole. I yeah, snack. <laughs> <laughs> it's your healthier pie hole. <laughs> All uh, right, cool. Well, the other one I wanted to mention briefly um, was the IKEA, the new BBH Singapore work for IKEA. So. The new IKEA catalog just came out, and of course, this it's a huge deal for IKEA. I think I think they print over two hundred million of these catalogs. I think it's the the it surpassed the Bible as the best selling uh, publication or the most printed publication. So BBH Singapore always does really fun IKEA work in general, and they they do specifically great work for the uh, for the catalog every year. They did the the whole book book um, campaign a couple of years back where they pretended that the print this printed uh, catalog was actually very di- you know digital. Uh, so it's it was hard to describe that, but it was it was such a fun video. And this year they did this really odd thing, where they they tracked down um, a world champion memory uh, memory a memory champion a woman a young twenty three year old actually she's a 
She's a Swedish woman with a great name. Her name is Janja Wintersoul. And she is this, she's got this crazy ability to remember all sorts of stuff. I don't know. She's been in competitions where she's blown everybody away. She can remember um, hundreds of digits, long numbers, things like that, which I, you know, I can't even remember, you know, what I had for breakfast this morning. But um, basically, they got Yanya to, to memorize the entire catalog. And this is like a 330-page catalog. And they gave it to her, and they gave her a few days to look it over. And she remembers every single spread. Like every, it's, it's your typical um, catalog spreads where you have people in, you know, in the environments showing off the products. And they, they would say to her, like, what's, you know, what's uh, on page 59? And she would describe the scene. Uh, there's a cool video that they put together, um, actually kind of telling the whole story of how Yanya got involved, and they show her her Skype audition uh, with with the company, with the agency, and you know it's got this kind of Guinness World Records type thing, which usually I'm not a big fan of. That kind of stuff's usually kind of boring. I find you know like I think Volvo did it recently, where they had like the world's largest unboxing, and it was just they had a truck pull in a car, and it was just kind of silly. And, and but this one I found her talent is so odd that I found it pretty compelling. Apparently they found her um, through, she was on Sweden's Got Talent. She's actually a young Swedish woman. So she was on uh, Sweden's Got Talent. I I guess every country has a Got Talent (laughs) show. And, you know, there's also a product pitch here, which is that the cat, this catalog is so big and and so full of stuff that it takes a world champion to get their head around it. So um, Lauren, though, you didn't like this campaign so much. Um, Yeah, I thought, I, I thought it was all right. <laughs> I, th- I, I some of IKEA's stuff is just kind of out there, and I think I think IKEA can basically kind of get away with whatever they want mm-hmm. when it comes to advertising and marketing. Um, but it, it just kind of seemed like I didn't really get the point of of her memorizing this, other than just to say, "Hey, let's do something wacky with our cal- like our catalog. Like, what exactly do you get out of it? I don't know." The fact this woman's yeah. a genius, maybe. It's uh, definitely she is. it's definitely stunty for sure. It's definitely yeah, yeah. I mean that that was kind of my beef with the most one of the most beloved among ad industry circles IKEA campaign was the literary critic reviewing the IKEA catalog as literature. Mm-hmm. Uh, I found it the the first time I watched it, it was enjoyably odd. Um, but then I was just like, what is the point? You know, it's it's like five six minutes long. And you're just like, okay, so I, I guess they're just saying that their catalog is important enough that someone would critique it, that someone would memorize it. Uh, but but on a in this, I'm probably betraying my people here of of people who are supposed to love high minded advertising. But I actually <laughs> really like the the more practical IKEA advertising about like the divorced families and you know the the stuff that gets a little more uh, practical. I guess. Mm-hmm. I mean, IKEA is one of those brands. I think Lauren's right. Um, it's such a beloved brand that it can experiment more. I think, and and if if certain things fail, like they don't, you know, they'll just move on to the next thing. But they also do have a pretty um, great history of of kind of innovating and trying things that are kind of unusual. I'm, I, I I remember, gosh, this is probably fifteen, maybe even twenty years ago. Um, they did. They got Wes Anderson to do some spots, and and they take the, these ads. He shot them in a showroom, I believe, at the uh, Elizabeth, New Jersey, uh, location, and it, they're just such strange commercials because um, it's it's families basically shopping around IKEA, and 
these families are like having arguments and, and the ads, you know, the ads, rarely do you see, you know, a family argument in, in a commercial unless it gets resolved in some way that suits the brand. But these were just ads with, with folks just bickering together. And then that was it. That was the whole ad. And, and it, you know, the products were kind of involved and talk about like very strange and, and, you know, unusual um, work. That's that campaign. If, if, if anyone wants to dig that up on YouTube, they're worth a watch. Yeah, I, I will say my, my personal favorite is, uh, and this is very obscure, but uh, several years ago, Ikea turned uh, 10 children's drawings into toys. Uh, so they had kids, they took kids like pictures that they drew with crayons and they're, you know, they're like the usual weird stuff like a dinosaur wearing a hat and, um, you know, like a crazy monster with like huge ears or whatever. And they took each of those and they perfectly made them into stuffed animals. And then they, I, I believe, sold the stuff, the stuffed animals to raise money for charity. But, you know, if you look up that of, of Adweek, uh, you know, Ikea plush toys, whatever combination, it, they did an incredible job of turning those things. It's just that's a great idea. Mm-hmm. Well, what was one that they had a, a few weeks ago, too, where they recorded people like rubbing bed sheets, essentially? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. That well, it's a really long thing. word. Yeah. Oh, the ass. ASMR thing. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know much about that, that that style, but it was kind of interesting watching that and listening to those bed sheets. Like I was telling Christina, one of our their staff writers who wrote about it, I, I actually went on and almost bought those bed sheets because I, like, I thought, well, you know what? This just sounds really relaxing for some reason. Yeah. A- ASMR, you know, is for it's for people who really like very soft uh, sounds. Like if you like Carl Sagan's voice or if you like, you know, just these really kind of uh, relaxing sounds. And the ASMR video trend has been around for several years. So I was almost surprised that it took a brand as long as, you know, this year for Ikea to jump on that. Uh, but I'll say this, like, I'm not into ASMR. There, there's there's some reaction you get, uh, like, people call it, like, the tickle or, like, the tingle <laughs> that you get from listening to this stuff. I, I don't get that uh, very much at all. Like, it's always, like, someone scratching their nails on fabric or, like, very lightly, not hard. Uh, and it doesn't work on me, but I'm fascinated by it. And so, like, you know, I, I listen to that whole 20-minute Ikea or <laughs> rubbing sheets. I'm like, I don't know if this makes me weird. <laughs> Supposedly they were very uh, – I, I don't watch a lot of um, videos like that either and don't really have that reaction. But I, Christina was saying that they're very similar to, you know, professional-level ASMR stuff that people do put on YouTube and that it, it was very well done. Yeah, they they must have hired like actual you know popular video creators for that stuff because that is a that is a weird art form to figure out. Maybe IKEA uh, needs its own ASMR podcast. <laughs> kidding, I don't know. A branded a, branded <laughs> ASMR podcast actually could be right. It could be fascinating for the right. Company. That would be good. <laughs> well, Tim, uh, thank you as always for rounding up the ads worth watching, and we are going to move into our big discussion of the week. All right, this week we are talking about Demexco, a major conference coming up in Cologne, Germany. Uh, Lauren, I believe I asked you this last year on our Demexco preview, but tell us what is Demexco? So I'll be going to Demexco for the third time this year. It's the third time that I'm pretty sure I've answered the mm-hmm. same thing. <laughs> uh, that it is a digital marketing conference in Demexico that's been, or in Cologne, Germany that's been gaining um, pretty big steam, really, from U.S marketers over the past couple of years. I mean, I think, you know, a good example of that is that we've heard, you know, Facebook is going to most likely be launching some stuff there. 
next week. Um, a lot of big CMOs are going this year, which they have they have gone somewhat in the past, although those tend to be kind of um, like lower level people from brands. But this year, Mark Pritchard is going to be giving a speech. Uh, J and J's CMO Alan- Allison Lewis is giving a keynote. Um, Samsung CMO is going to be there. Sure, I'm blanking on on many others. IKEA's CMO, actually, speaking of which, I believe is going to be there. Um, so it's really attracting a lot of uh, big interest from big brands, just because it's you know this whole ad tech themed conference. And as we kind of got into it this week's cover story, it's an area that CMOs are kind of taking more in control of their on their own and being uh, you know held accountable for these types of issues and advertising. This conference is gigantic, right? It is. Um, yeah, it, it 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 dwarfs the tiny town of Cologne, Germany, for for two days. Uh, so it it is very big. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. Is it like a hundred thousand people or something? Crazy? I need to go double check. I feel yeah. like I feel like it's how many people um, are at South by usually. So I feel like that might be, at least give you some kind of comparison between the two. It's it's been growing. Um, Pretty big. Well, the uh, and it, it I, I believe I probably said this on last year's episode too, but it stands for Digital Marketing Exposition and Conference. In case anyone wonders where the name Demexco comes from, uh, but I I wanted to dive in uh, this year. Uh, it seems like there's uh, certainly a few hot topics which were burbling to the surface last year but are definitely center stage uh, this time around. Uh, so we address that, as Lauren mentioned, with our cover story. Uh, and so, you know, wanted to kind of get a bit of the, the background. You talked to Mark Pritchard, who's the chief brand officer for Procter & Gamble. Uh, tell us why, Mark. Uh, what, what, was, what was his role for those who haven't been following kind of his stake in the game here? So the backstory on Pritchard is that for the past couple of years, uh, he told me he's been working in various ways to address some of these issues in digital advertising, whether that's fraud or agency transparency, um, programmatic concerns, brand safety concerns, all of those things more or less kind of in the background. And this year in January, that all kind of somewhat came to a head when he laid out this plan that he that he's put in place for all of all of 2017 and uh, basically asking all of the agencies, tech platforms, vendors, partners, et cetera, to kind of clean up their houses um, in terms of, you know, those those types of shady things that they do, like rebates or um, brand safety, transparency, those types of things, and kind of lay it all out on the table and, and get it cleaned up or else he's threatening to pull, you know, P&G's 2.4 billion uh, spend from various players who do not get their house in order uh, for 2018. So that's kind of the yeah. backstory behind it and why he has become um, one of, you know, there are there are several of them, but he is definitely one of the more outspoken CMOs right now in terms of, of getting these issues addressed by brand marketers. And he, he estimates in your interview with him that about 20 to 30 percent of digital ad budgets are wasted uh, at the moment, which there's an old joke that Tim and I mentioned a, a lot of um, goes back many decades about I, I know half my advertising budget is wasted. I just wish I knew which half. And so it's good to know digital is only 20 to 30 percent, uh, Tim. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's an improvement. 
Um, but he estimates that the, that that waste is going into things like bad bad measurement, bad visibility, fraud, uh, you know, bots, inappropriate content, so ads appearing on um, you know objectionable content uh, or appearing around that content. So he is delivering a keynote at Demexco this year, Lauren. What do you expect him to say or to, to do with that keynote? I expect him to give a little bit of an update on where stuff is, which he, you know, to some degree kind of did with us. Like he has been, you know, PNG has been, it's a five part program that he has asked all of his, uh, all of PNG's partners to abide from. So, you know, in, in terms of stuff like agency transparency, for example, he thinks that's about 80% of the way there, mostly due to the fact that P&G is, has now put all of its agencies are accountable when it comes to stuff like rebates. Um, so that's, you know, near being finished, if not totally finished. Uh, then you've got stuff like I expect him to probably talk about what's going on with Facebook and Google's um, viewability. Uh, because in his mind, that's about 60% of the way there, I believe. The first part, the first 50-odd uh, percent being about just getting the platforms to recognize the need to go through this audit to get their stats checked. And you know, we've been talking about third-party viewability for a long time and how some of these platforms are kind of like you know mini-walled gardens that advertisers don't have a lot of clarity into. Um, so the first part was about, you know, this year we've seen a lot of the platforms recognize that they need to be more open, a bit more transparent, because that's what advertisers are asking for. The last 50% of that is now getting the platforms to actually do that. So I uh, kind of address him. I expect him to kind of cover a lot of different areas, I guess, at Mexico. And, and let's take a quick step back for vocabulary here for those who haven't been kind of waist deep in a lot of this stuff over the last years. When we talk about rebates, what we mean, and definitely correct me if I'm wrong, is when an agency is buying a bunch of uh, ads for multiple clients and they get a discount or they get money back. And there's allegations that agencies, although not a whole lot of proof in the United States, but that agencies have been pocketing that money instead of giving it back to their clients. That's what we mean when we say rebates, right? Right. It goes back to the that money uh, goes back to an agency versus obviously the more ethical thing to do is to uh, give it to the advertiser. Yeah. And then when we talk about viewability, what we mean is, is enough of the ad viewable on site on what you're looking at that it deserves to be charged for, right? Instead of just like, oh, there's like a third of a, of a banner ad on my mobile, therefore it's going to charge that advertiser for a full ad. It means, is there a standard way to measure how much of this ad is is viewable on a screen? Can I use the same standard that I use on Facebook? Can I use it on YouTube? Can I use it on Snapchat? Can I use it on the New York Times website? Uh, That's what the third party uh, layer to that means. Yeah. So nobody wants to be charged for an ad that you know, was was buried underneath someone's web browser or was basically somewhere they couldn't even see it. Uh, so cool. I just wanted to take a step back and make sure that uh, everybody listening was was up to speed on some of those terms because they'll probably come up again. You know, it, it seems like there is progress, as you mentioned, that he's got a lot to talk about. Facebook's going to be rolling out a new tool that it sounds like, uh, and maybe you can tell me a little more about this, but it sounds like it's going to let advertisers blacklist, essentially. It's not a whitelisting tool. You don't pick, I mean, I guess you can already whitelist your Facebook ads if you just want to go manually 
really pick where it appears. But this is like a, a broader ad tool that lets you blacklist certain publications. Like I'm going to go out and let and guess, you know, Breitbart for ones who don't want their stuff appearing on Breitbart or, you know, some of the even more objectionable, uh, you know, extremist kind of sites. Uh, is that what this tool is going to look like? Yeah. So they started rolling uh, actually portions of this out this summer. And now uh, that's it's being av- available to all media buyers. So you will be able to go in there and create lists of, you know, publishers that you want um, that you want to avoid or that you you know the idea being that these are these are publishers where your ads could show up doesn't mean that they will show up but they could they could show up on Breitbart so then you'll have to go in and manually you know kind of select a list and say okay I don't want anything to show up on Breitbart and, and you know what's what's great for the advertiser about a tool like that is sometimes some of these publications get pretty toxic pretty fast uh, and you you have to be able to respond on the fly. Like if you you know think back to when Bill O'Reilly was in hot water on on Fox, a lot of those advertisers didn't want to pull their money off Fox. They just they just didn't want to be around Bill O'Reilly. And and so it's you know having that kind of granular control is something, and and having it in a very flexible environment is something that advertisers certainly want. Uh, some of the other progress you cite in the article is that uh, brands are assembling these internal teams to really kind of look at brand safety, which, again, is is one of these industry terms that you hear a lot these days, which just means, you know, you don't want your ads running on sites that are that don't fit with your brand message or that are inappropriate. Uh, it sounds like I guess to me what struck me about that is this idea of brands really taking that internally is that. Brands used to buy digital ads and just say, like, okay, here's how much money we have to spend. Agency, you go buy those ads and run it for us and let us know how well it went. Those days seem to be over, right? I think that's what caused, um, yeah, I, I would say those days are definitely coming to an end for a lot of a lot of big brands. And I think all of the uh, CMOs that we spoke to for this piece all had some kind of internal team that's basically tasked with handling this stuff and then relaying that, either relaying that information to an agency or just doing it on their own. And I think, you know, the reason why you're seeing that is because that's those types of without that kind of um, in-house expertise, without some control, that's really what's led to all of the concerns over programmatic over the past few years is that there's, you know, there's a lot of like red tape in terms of trying to figure out, okay, who's, who's, who's accountable for this? Who's responsible for this? If the agents, if, you know, from the agency perspective, if the brand tells me, okay, go buy ads everywhere. And then lo and behold, some of those end up on Breitbart. Is that really the agency's fault if that's what the brand told them to do? Um, so I think that you're just seeing a lot of marketers just kind of take, take a step back and say, okay, there's portions of this we really need to do on our own. Um, so it just kind of it cre- it's creating this what I think is a really interesting dynamic between agencies and brands. Yeah, and the stepping up that ownership by the brands really is accomplishing a lot of things that the agencies couldn't necessarily do themselves because, you know, the brands, to your point about, you, you know, you kind of politely called Pritchard's uh, speech, you know, a, a request, you know, it's a plan. It was also kind of a mandate, you know, <laughs> then he basically said, this is what you're going to do if you want our money. And, you know, by doing that, they they create more incentive. Uh, they create a lot of pressure, but they create more incentive for uh, you know for folks to work together. And so you mentioned in your story that uh, PNG's programmatic partner, the Trade Desk, is partnering with White Ops uh, to which can basically detect bots, and they're trying to prevent basically block bot views. Bots are used to basically to fake views uh, for sites that want to get your money, even if they don't have visitors. Uh, so that's obviously a cheap way of doing that. And so they're forming this partnership to basically help PNG 
not get bot viewership anymore. You mentioned Bank of America is working with three of their vendors, uh, Moat, White Ops, and Double Verify, uh, to kind of come up with a system for m- monitoring all this. All, all this stuff, you know, that couldn't be done, in, in my opinion, without the brands really driving it forward, because otherwise it would just be the chaos of all these agencies and vendors fighting against each other. Uh, Marty, we haven't uh, made much room for you. I'm, I'm curious, you know, a lot of this is driven by the duopoly, uh, Facebook and Google really dominating, well, what is it, 90 whatever percent of the ad marketplace today. How do you see that relationship? It feels like there is this kind of tension between brands and the duopoly right now of basically who has the power. You know, it's like we own 90 percent of the marketplace, but if you don't have the advertiser dollars, then you can't do anything. And then that 90 percent doesn't really mean anything. Do you? But it also feels like they're starting to compromise and work together. And what does that relationship look like, do you think? You know, it's a good question. It definitely does feel like this like you said, it's this place where they have to play, even if they don't like all the rules. But where else are they going to go? Because I mean, even with like with Facebook, they have the Facebook Audience Network, which is doing ad targeting for different publishers. So you can't just focus on publishers. And so it's interesting to see how often Facebook says they're listening, yet at the same time, brands still don't seem that satisfied with what what's happening. Well, and you know, talking about uh, Pritchard's speech, I remember. Uh, when he first announced this back in January, February at the at the conference at IAB, I, I was there and I was asking people on the ground what they thought about it. And it made a big splash, but one-on-one people thought it was just going to be him talking. And so it's interesting to look, you know, like six, seven months out now to see the, uh, the weight that that speech has had and, and how these big players like Facebook and Google are finally starting to, to change things based on based on these demands. And so it's, it, it really is like these brands and these marketers have to work together um, to make a change. If it's just maybe like some smaller no-name brand or agency uh, asking for these things, Facebook's probably going to be like, well, you know, everyone else likes this. But yeah. if everyone is collectively demanding more, and I would like to, it seems like the publishers need to do that more too, because they're also dissatisfied. That's something we haven't talked about, but uh, they're also dissatisfied with the the balance. And so you kind of have this trifecta of, you know, who gets what. Um, yeah, I don't know. It just seems like the only way to work with this seems to be in mass. I kind of lost my words there at the end there, but well, so Lauren, um, we've covered a lot of the big picture stuff, but any anything else you're excited about seeing, even kind of outside of these big industry shaping trends uh, at Demexco? Anything you're interested to see? Uh, well, one of the interesting things about Demexico is that it, since it is a European conference on ad tech, it tends to have um, a different than we typically cover a lot in the U.S. So they cover, you know, I'll be hearing, I'm sure, a lot about privacy and uh, the EU has its own very interesting relationship when it comes to ad blocking and and some of uh, the government's role in, you know, in ad ad tech, more or less. Um, So those are kind of interesting things that you don't really get a perspective of in the in the U.S. that I'm looking forward to. Well, great. Well, I can't wait to hear more about what you find at uh, in Cologne this year. And thanks so much for joining us. I cannot recommend enough uh, that people check out the uh, the cover story that Lauren wrote this month. It was one of my favorite pieces that we've run in a very long time. Uh, the headline on the website is "Digital Advertising is Facing Its Ultimate Moment of Truth." And billions of dollars are at stake. Uh, it is her interview with Mark Pritchard and several other CMOs. Uh, definitely check that out. It is such a good read. Congratulations, Lauren. That was an awesome story. Thank you. 
All right. Well, we are out of time today, uh, but thank you so much to the panel for joining us. And don't forget, you can email us at podcast at adweek.com. We love getting your questions. And uh, yeah, it definitely hit us up there. Uh, our theme music is by Home. Uh, this week's episode was produced by Christina Monlos. Thank you, Christina. Uh, if you have not already, please leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. We love reading your feedback, and it helps new audiences discover the podcast. I'm David Greiner with Adweek, and we will talk to you next week. Today's episode was brought to you by The Trade Desk. No matter how many devices your audience turns to each day, you can keep your entire media buy under one roof at The Trade Desk. Learn more at thetradedesk.com. That's thetradedesk.com.